Right, let us pray. Lord, we have opened your word this morning, and as we sit before you, we ask that it is your spirit that sits with each one of us, that guides us, leads us, directs us to give you our thoughts, hearts, attention. Help what we take out this morning from the service to be what you want us to think on and think about, guided and led by your spirit as we go into our world. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Almost uh, two weeks ago now, it was Waitangi Day. And uh, as, as it happened this year and the week before Waitangi Day, uh, Andrew and I were on holiday visiting family in Paihia. So if you've ever been up that way, that's literally the town right next door to Waitangi. And they're separated by just a very small bridge, which if you didn't know from going from one town to the other, you, you wouldn't realise. We were there because Andrea's sister lives there with uh, her two sons and their families, and especially the person I want to focus on today, which is uh, Andrea's grandniece, who just turned four, and her tame, uh, name is Letizia Donovan. Now, as we go along, we have checked with the Donovans in this church so far and know that, uh, as far as we know, they're not related, so they can't claim uh, this is their family, but in some ways it is. Now, you may also have heard of the saying, out of the mouths of babes comes what? Wisdom, that's right, great wisdom. Out of the mouths of babes comes great wisdom, which is a saying that actually does come from the Bible, except that you won't find it there if you look for it. It is the very original, from the 1400s, um, translation into English from the original, what became the King James Version of Psalm 8 verse 2. And, but it was slightly incorrect from the original Hebrew. So very originally they had, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants comes great wisdom and strength. But it wasn't quite a correct translation from the original Hebrew. So if you look up a King James today uh, or an NIV, it will say something like, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have brought forth your praise, which is very similar, but not quite correct, which is why they changed it. But by the time they changed it, it had already become a saying in the English language. Even with that change, though, the idea of children being an example to learn from is still well found in the Bible, and especially in the famous teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, where he said, unless you change and become like little children, meaning in your faith, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is about trusting and accepting like little children do. Well, while I was in Northland, I had a really interesting conversation with four-year-old Letizia Donovan, which I'm not sure I've got perfectly, but it went a little bit like this. Do you know, this is Letizia talking, do you know everyone in the world has the same last name, which is Donovan? And I said, are you sure? Because my name is Tony Wood, not Tony Donovan. And your auntie Andrea is Andrea Wood, not Andrea Donovan. To which Letizia said to me, no, your name is Tony Wood Donovan. And aunt, auntie Andrea is Andrea Wood Donovan. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> but it must be because my last name is Donovan and everyone I know has the last name Donovan, and God made everyone in the world. So everyone in the whole world is from the same family, 
So therefore, everyone must really have the same last name, which must be Donovan, because that's my last name. And then she said, and because God is head of the whole family, because God is head of the whole family of everyone in the world, God's last name must also be Donovan. (laughs) So when you pray in the morning, if you want to talk to God properly, you should say, hello and good morning, God Donovan, because that would be God's real last name. Now, I thought of that Bible verse, Psalm 8, even if it was technically incorrect, and thought, yes, out of the mouths of babes does indeed become great wisdom. And even if Letizia was also slightly incorrect, and that not everyone in the world does have the last name Donovan, I'm sure she will work that out in time. But out of the simplicity with which she explained that, she's captured one of the great truths that is behind the whole Bible. The way God views our world, all of creation, all of heaven and earth, and that is that we are all really one family. And when we read Isaiah 58 today, that's what's behind the very strong language in that passage, where God through the prophet is saying, this nation that fasts, which was seen as the deepest and most committed type of prayer, that calls out to God, that goes to the synagogue or the temple, as I asked them to, when they are doing that, they act as if they are a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken God's commands. But, says Isaiah, while you fast, you exploit your workers. You quarrel and fight and manipulate to get your way. If you want God to hear you, see answers to your prayers, then that there is where you must begin. Start by actually acting like a nation that does what is right, and not just says it does, and does follow God's commands by humbling yourself, by loosing the chains of injustice, by sharing food with the hungry, by providing shelter and clothing to those who need them. Then, says God through Isaiah, if you do that, then light will break forth from God like the dawn for you. And I thought, what a great image that is, isn't it? At home, uh, I often sit outside in a little swing seat we've got with a cup of coffee, and my back is to where the sun rises, and I'm looking at uh, Rangatuhi Colonial Knob. And as the sun comes up, it is like someone's pulling a blanket down the hill, you know, where a line just goes rolling down where the darkness goes and the sun takes its place. It's like something that brings change and brightness to everything. Isaiah is saying, when you try to live correctly and, and pray, then it's like that's what it will be like as you call to God. God will answer and say, here I am, I am listening, and I will show you the way to go. Over the past nine years that I have been an ordained minister, when I've done research for sermon, sermons, it's always been my practice to go away and study a passage for the week as deeply as I can, learn everything I can about it for myself, so then I can stand here and teach as accurately what I think the original writer Uh, and God behind it, was saying. In doing that, I have sometimes come across a Bible verse that I I thought I knew quite well, and then when um, studying it, discovered it meant actually something quite different. Without doubt, I wanted to share this morning the one I found personally most challenging when I researched the story of the widow's mite from Mark 12, where the mite was like a, a tiny copper coin. 
Like me, I found that most people who have heard that story think it was a story about congratulating or holding the widow up as a person of great faith, to be admired and followed as a great example of trust and faith in God. Someone who puts her last two copper coins or mites into the temple treasury, trusting God for her future to be provided for, honouring God with whatever she has, however much or little that is. But when I studied that story, I was quite shocked and surprised to learn that in the Greek, there is no positive word, language or grammar from the start to finish of the entire passage. There is no word that says it is a positive and good story at all. Words like faith, trust and honour are actually nowhere to be found. Instead, I found commentary after commentary from professors and scholars that pointed out that the topic of the story is clearly given to us, that Jesus is illustrating a point by pointing out the woman that he gave us to us in the passage before, where he said, Beware of the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes, meaning they act religiously, but they devour widows' houses. And then he points to a widow whose house is being devoured, which is what the story is all about, which is exactly the same message as Isaiah 58, which showed that in 650 years between those passages, they hadn't really learned anything. In the Bible, the Pharisees are most known for being those people Jesus opposed and who Jesus criticised and who in turn criticised Jesus because they were overly religious and strict in their practice and they'd lost the sense of love, care and freedom that their religion was meant to bring. Most people don't realise that when the Pharisees began somewhere around 200 BC, they were a group who were really sincerely trying to work out small steps and rules for everyone that meant they could be confident in living out God's law in their society. But over time, the rules became more and more detailed, they were held up as the important thing to be doing, even above helping people on the Sabbath. So the intention of the law, which was the good of everyone, was lost in a set of strict rules. And that's actually what's happening in this story. The lady, the widow, is following a rule that said to keep God's law when you come to the temple, you need to bring something to offer God to show your gratitude. However, the heart of the Old Testament expressed in many places is that says that widows and orphans who don't have the means to support themselves should come to the temple and there they will be supported and provided for and get what they need to live on. So instead of the story being an example of great faith, it is in fact a horror story of someone in great poverty, desperately needing help, having to give away the last item she has to live on for food just to come to the place of worship she wants to be in as her last act. And the question in this story is, did she ever get the food and help she needed? Do you know what? We don't know. Because Jesus and Mark deliberately, I think, leave that open so that we are drawn to think if we see something similar, what would we do? Will we be moved to help, or will we just let it go on and not do something about it? And always wonder what happened to that person we saw. Or, I'm sure as Jesus and Mark both hope, and as Isaiah 58 is trying to bluntly hammer, would we step in and do something? 
And that's the challenge of that passage. As I said at the start, two weeks ago was Waitangi Day. And in the week leading up to Waitangi Day, I read two things that really fascinated me. The first is that the influence behind the writing of the treaty did not start in New Zealand, but in England, and specifically by a sect of the Methodist Church that John Wesley founded, called the Clapham Sect. Had anyone ever heard of them? No? Some, there's a few people around. At the time, the leader was one Mr. William Wilberforce. How many people have heard of him? He died in 1833, seven years before the treaty was signed. Wesley, in starting the Clapham sect, uh, when he was alive, the aim was to bring social reform to the United Kingdom. Wilberforce, as the leader of that group at the time, had been part of a group that by then had uh, made providing prisoners uh, in prison with a better working condition, a better living conditions. Because up, up until then, it was quite in, inhuma, uh, inhumane, and, the de- and they stopped the deportation of prisoners to Australia. They fought for fair wages. They began the Polytech movement, starting evening classes and upskilling people to get better jobs, help them out of poverty. They started the Girl Guides, the Boy Scouts, and the RSPCA in the UK. And Wilberforce himself had begun the Aboriginals Protection Society of Australia because he was appalled at what was happening there. He also wrote to Anglican missionary Samuel Marsden in New Zealand and wrote in his letter, you must look out for the welfare of every British citizen in New Zealand as well as being mindful of the indigenous people. While that was opposed by the British businessmen of the time wanting to take advantage of this new region, it was the Clapham sect that gave a lot of the wording to the Treaty of Waitangi and whose influence was behind it and the intent with which it was to go forward with both groups as one family and in a country where things were fair for both. The second thing I saw recently about the treaty was in a newspaper about the treaty house itself. So you might have read this yourself in the Dominion Post. Where the original treaty was signed on a lawn outside Governor James Busby's house in 1840. But by 1920, that entire area was a farm owned by one man who wrote to the New Zealand government and said, apparently there was a treaty signed on my property at some point, about which I do not know and have never heard of. But as I consider pulling down this old dilapidated house on my property and considered selling my farm, I wondered if the New Zealand government might have some interest in it. That story made me think how quickly things fall away and become insignificant and unimportant if we let them go and don't intentionally keep the ideas and memory up. How is it that the farmer who owned the Waitangi Treaty grounds just 80 years after it was signed didn't even know a treaty existed or even what it was about? This all comes back, I think, to the great wisdom in Letizia Donovan's comment, and Isaiah, by the way, and God, who said it first in Isaiah 58. If we are really one family, we don't fast, say we are followers of God, act religiously, and exploit people. We don't sign a treaty and ignore it, or exploit it for our own means either. We don't enslave people because they aren't the same as us. When we are one family, and we love as a family does, we in fact do exactly the opposite. 
It just so happens that on, on the very small farm where Letizia lives, they have put up a tiny house, which you, sometimes you can watch those TV programs about tiny house builds. Well, they've got a tiny house on their property which has access to a shower and a toilet, toilet for Letizia's mother's brother who just needs a bit of help with life so he doesn't have living costs and he's safe and they can check on him and keep an eye on him, make sure he's uh, staying healthy and uh, well-maintained. There is absolutely no financial reason for helping him. It's because they love him, they care about him, and he's family, because that's what families do. They are Those who are special to you, you go the extra mile for. You do what you can to help because you love them. C.S. Lewis, the writer of The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe Fantasy series, once famously said, you can never look into the eyes of someone God does not love. Because to quote Letizia, God is a Donovan. And we are all Donovans because we are all part of God's family, whether we know it or not. We just haven't learned it yet. So as we live out our faith in God, that is the first and most important thing to always remember in how we approach our worship on Sunday and our living in the world in between. Let us pray. Lord, we do ask at this time that it is your spirit that guides and leads us. And while we might have uh, done a word play on the name Donovan this morning, any surname uh, belongs in there because each surname just shows that we are one family. Lord, guide and lead our hearts, direct us, direct us in our lives as we live it out before you, that our worship and our loving of our neighbours are held together always as two parts of the same thing. May you lead us in our lives of faith and in your love always. Amen.